All right, and we are rolling once again. I am back. I am Lee Grant, joined by Kevin Pendergrass, and we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. And tonight we are joined by a professor of Old Testament at Oklahoma Christian named Grant Tetsu. Grant, how are you this evening? I'm doing well. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Brother, we are really glad to have you on. Kevin has told me a little bit about you. He's basically said you're a really, really, really smart dude and that you know a lot of good stuff about the Bible. So I said, well, hey, that sounds like the perfect guest for us. And tonight we're going to be discussing the idea of multiple narrative voices in the Old Testament. And whenever Kevin brought that up to me, I was like, you know, that would be an interesting topic to dive into because it's not something that you really see discussed in greater evangelical circles. It's not really something that you hear preached about in in church or in Sunday school or in any place like that. So many people view the scriptures as a whole, and there's certainly a meta narrative that flows through it. But many people look at the scriptures as a sort of a monolithic entity that is written by, we might say, one author. And in terms of inspiration, I can see that idea and that perspective. But when we think about the scriptures on human terms and in terms of human authorship, that's not really the case. And we see some of those narrative voices come to the surface. So we're going to begin discussing, or we're going to discuss those things this evening. And I'm just glad that you were willing to come on to, to have this conversation. Yeah, I, I appreciate being on your, your podcast. I, I love what you guys do. And uh, I, I like that it makes uh, a space available for people who have questions and validates them in that, you know, that they, well, they don't have to be kicked out of faith. They, <laughs> there's a place for them, yeah. And this is going to be very confusing tonight because we have Dr. Lee Grant and then we have Dr. Grant. So we've got Dr. <laughs> Lee and Dr. Grant. And uh, both. <laughs> so I, I, I feel like, you know, whether you say Lee or Grant, you're talking to someone tonight uh, on yeah. this podcast. So it's, it's going to be easy to do that. But no, in talking about this, I want to define this a little bit for our audience, because this may be something that's very unfamiliar to those who are listening. It was fam unfamiliar to me when I first started studying uh, some, just getting into more of a higher criticism and understanding the Old Testament. And before I thought that the Old Testament was perfectly harmonizable in everything that it said. And I believe that in large part because I thought it had to be. And so even when I started to see some tensions throughout the Old Testament, there, I would just go to uh, you know defendinginerrancy.com or apologexpress.com, one of the, the hundreds of apologetics websites out there that try to give these answers to make everything fit perfectly. And at the time, it worked. It really worked for me because when you're looking for an answer, any, anything's going to do, right? Like any, anything will work. Mm -hmm. If you're in your mind, if this has to work and someone says, well, here's an answer that works, you're probably not going to pursue it. You're just going to say, okay, well, hey, this person said that this is the answer. And so that's sufficient for me. So I really never engaged these types of intentions. I always looked at them just above the surface. But when I started to engage these tensions, it really started to shake my faith at first. And the reason why I think having this discussion with you tonight is going to be so valuable is that Christians need to realize that if they are studying the Bible, and in, for this particular episode, if they're studying the Old Testament and they see some tensions, we may even say contradictions and conflicts, that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist and the Bible is, is just a book that needs to be thrown away. It just means we may need to allow the Bible to tell us 
what it is and allow the Bible to teach us how it behaves instead of projecting our expectations on how we want the Bible to behave. And so with that said, so so with that said, kind of give us a little definition of what we're talking about when we say that the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, speaks sometimes with multiple voices. That the that the Old Testament is not always univocal. What what do you what exactly does that mean? Sure. Yeah. So. Uh, it begins with something that all of us should have no trouble acknowledging wh- you know, wherever we are in, in this process. It begins with the idea that there are multiple authors. Nobody's going to fight against that concept, uh, especially considering how many generations these texts were spread over. Uh, in, yeah, in the Old Testament isn't one volume, right? The, the yeah, Old Testament's yeah. not one volume written by one author. Um, even That's if right, even yeah. through a view of inspiration, we would say, okay, well, God is ultimately the orchestrator of Scripture. But as far as people who took a uh, pen to uh, to scroll <laughs> or stone, right, rock yeah, stone yeah. or whatever, um, <laughs> yeah, kind of explain to us how over over a period of how many years and how many different texts and authors are we dealing with when we're looking at the uh, Old Testament as as the text that they are, the compilation of texts. Yeah. So these the multiple voices, like I said, it, it begins at that simplest level where you realize, like you're saying, that there are these multiple authors spread out over a, a great period of time. Uh, when you take clues from from the the language itself, you know, Hebrew, just like all other languages, has changed over time. Uh, you know, just like our own English language. You know, you go back a couple centuries and it sounds different. And, and this is true of biblical Hebrew as well. Uh, over the period of the, the composition of these texts, you're talking about some changes that took place in the language. Uh, and so in, in my field, for example, we, we distinguish a, a variety of Hebrew that we call archaic biblical Hebrew. Uh, and according to that name, you can imagine this is going to be some of the oldest uh, versions of Hebrew, old to a number of these people that are already ancient to us. <laughs> you know, so uh, that would include, for example, the Song of the Sea, right, the famous Exodus 15, celebrating that victory uh, of Yahweh uh, over over uh, Egypt and its gods. And uh, it shows signs linguistically of being an early text, earlier than the surrounding narrative, actually. Uh, so that's one example. Another famous one is the, the song of Deborah and Barak in Judges 5, when they celebrate that victory. Uh, and, and there again, uh, not that you could tell in English translation or other translations, but uh, for those of us who study the, the original language of the text, it stands out in, in sharp contrast with the surrounding narrative. Not just because it's poetry, which is one part of it, but the, the language is steeped in some older uh, grammar uh, that has since faded out, has, has uh, shifted in the language. And so some of those earliest texts, you're probably talking about um, early Iron Age. Uh, maybe some of the earliest estimates would be toward the very beginning of the, the Iron Age, around 1200 BCE. Uh, more probably we're talking you know, closer to 1000 BCE uh, for the origin of some of those songs. Uh, and when you take that into consideration, you know, those who might be keeping track of the numbers might say, well, that already sounds later than possible dates we have in mind for Moses, uh, for some of these other stories. And that would be true. 
<laughs> but it still what you know, it still suggests that there is an, an older tradition here uh, that is being remembered and recorded by this later author and or in some cases authors. Uh, and uh, so that's some of our earliest datable evidence. But the problem is that many of these manuscripts uh, decayed over time. We don't have any original version of any text of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we, we can't date the texts as easily that way. Uh, as you may know, the, the earliest material evidence that one could conceivably hold in, in their hand would be something like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, but um, by that point, you're talking roughly 200 BCE to uh, a little before 100 CE. Um, yeah. So, and, oh, I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, worries. well, I was just going to say, and, and uh, since you asked, on the latter end of of the composition of the Hebrew Bible, uh, here again, based on some language clues as well as um, some historical clues from within the texts. Uh, uh, some of the older estimates people used to have of the Old Testament uh, period of composition ending around 400 BCE, that may sound familiar to you and your listeners, um, uh, that's been demonstrated as, as no longer tenable, uh, once again, based on language clues. So uh, a book of Daniel, for example, uh, which uh, has this setting in terms of the narrative of it, a setting in the 6th century of the Babylonian captivity, uh, shows signs of a late uh, Jewish Aramaic, Palestinian Aramaic, we, we call it as well, uh, that uh, was in use in, in centuries following that time. And uh, other linguistic clues, as well as some historical clues that would place it within the Maccabean period, the Maccabean revolt. Uh, and so uh, really think about what a change that is. Now we're talking about some of the, the last texts of the Hebrew Bible uh, reaching completed state, likely, uh, in the what is now the second century BCE. Uh, that's much, we're coming by that measure much closer to the, the time of uh, Jesus of Nazareth being born. Uh, so it's, it's fascinating to think that some of these texts were, were uh, written not too many uh, decades out from the beginning of the Christian movement. Well, and that to me, it just, it's, and I don't know why, but just hearing that come from you, it lends so much more credence, at least in my mind, to a position that I had come to possess that Kevin and I talked about on this, on this podcast last year, whenever we were going through um, Genesis and origins and things like that. And we were talking about reconciling science with faith. I had made the comment just kind of in passing, we really didn't even get into it about how I don't really believe, or I didn't believe that, that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch, for example. Mm -hmm. And so much of what you're saying aligns with what I've read. And the biggest difference between you and I is you are a bona fide language expert on this. Like, you know, Hebrew, you know, the old Testament, you are a scholar that pursues this. I'm a layman that reads after other scholars. And what you're saying about the archaic Hebrew and how even that isn't as old as some of these other examples that were contemporary, even that preceded some of some of what we see in the scriptures in other sources and in other places. You know, that's one of the reasons why I ultimately personally ended up rejecting, you know, the idea that Moses himself wrote it. Another idea is the place names contained within the Bible, etc. Mm -hmm. But but what you're saying, it it falls in line with so many other things. 
because we understand if we read something now and it says, you know, you know, come to me, my lover, bear me thou upon thine wings. We know that it's not something that's written in our modern time, you know, and if you, we understand that with English and for a lot of people, this idea about language can be really jarring and it can really start to affect their faith in the scriptures. Well, then if Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, well, then who did? Well, if we start talking about how it was compiled, you know, maybe during the exile or after the exile or, you know, or anything else that doesn't discount the fact that there is an oral tradition that drove those writings. And yeah. do you have any, anything to, to say about that? That's kind of a general thing. And I, it was better in my mind and didn't come out quite like I wanted it to. <laughs> well, and, and, and I'll second really what Lee is, is talking about because I have changed even since Lee, you and I've had that discussion, I think about a year ago, because I'm, I'm of the opinion now Moses probably didn't write uh, the Pentateuch, probably couldn't have written it. Um, when you start looking at some of the things within the Pentateuch, you know, without even having to know Hebrew, I mean, the fact that Moses, if Moses is supposed to write all of these five books, and he is truly the most humble man in the world. What would you expect the most humble person to say? Uh, you know, Numbers twelve three. If Moses is writing, he says that Moses is the most humble man in the world. <laughs> well, that in and of itself makes you wonder. Okay, would the most humble man in the world call himself the most humble man in the world? And so, even internally, you know, you see that uh, if if Moses is writing, why does he never refer to himself as in the first person? Why, why is Moses always in the third person? And you start seeing just these contextual clues. And before we freak out our audience too much, I want to remind them that there is nothing in the Bible that says Moses was the author of the Pentateuch. Now, now correct me, please, if I'm wrong on this, but in my studies, you obviously don't have that in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You don't, you never have anyone claiming authorship. But the reason why I used to believe that Moses wrote these first five books, first of all, is because I was trained to believe that. <laughs> That's the first reason why. Uh, I was taught that that is the truth, and I was given some, some verses for that. And the verses that I uh, was handed to teach that was ver were verses such as uh, that talked about the law of Moses and Jesus referring back to the law of Moses or just the phrase the law of Moses, which obviously was a reference to the first five books. And, and, there, and, and there was Jewish tradition that Moses was the author, but even within that framework, we may say the gospel of Mark or the gospels of Jesus, but we don't mean to imply that Jesus was the author of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Rather, he is the center focus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we do see Moses is the focus of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as far as the main character. I mean, that's that's who we who, who's being discussed predominantly in those first five books. And so there's nothing in the Bible that actually teaches Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. So before people begin to lose their faith over this, this is really an unnecessary faith crisis that I was facing, and I had kind of set myself up for failure. And that's what's so scary. You give teenagers, I used to go to apologetics classes in high school with my church, and you give teenagers mm -hmm. just a little bit of knowledge, and they feel like they have all the answers, and then they run up against someone who actually does know what they're talking about. And because you have been given this proposition to defend, and you can't do it, what is, what is the alternative? Well, I guess I'm wrong and I, I guess I have to leave my faith. That's what's so scary to me. 
that that's why we're doing this podcast, not just this episode, but many of these issues that we have seen people leave Christianity, leave their faith completely, not because of the Bible, but because of a false, uh, I, I would even say not just a false presupposition, but this inherited expectation of what the Bible's supposed to do for them. And when it doesn't do that, they begin to blame the Bible instead of question that expectation. So I, I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on Moses writing the Pentateuch? If you believe he if do you believe he did write the Pentateuch? And if not, why do you believe he didn't? And what are some reasons that you have come up against where perhaps people would disagree with you and claim that he did? Uh, write the these first five books. Sure, yeah. So, uh, part of this was was my own uh, first awakening to to these realities, uh, having been in grad the grad program for for some time already, and having spent a number of years with Hebrew. Uh, it, it came about naturally enough. One evening, I was I was doing personal Bible study. It wasn't even connected with my with my academic studies, but uh, I was reading the Hebrew text of Genesis uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And uh, a number of us, we, we know now this, this idea that these are two distinct narratives, uh, two versions, you can say, of, of a creation account. And uh, I, you know, of course, I had been uh, told this before. This is Lee, like what you were saying earlier. You know, this, it's one thing to be told uh, by uh, by uh, at least supposed experts. You know, this is the way it is. Uh, and and sometimes even then, when it's somebody you might say is is uh, in a credentialed position, uh, you still can distance yourself from fully acknowledging that that as a reality. But when it was just the text and myself <laughs> there in that room, and I was. I was reading through it. On this particular occasion, uh, I couldn't escape. I was seeing it with my own eyes. Oh, my goodness. These are two different accounts. Uh, it stood out to me, especially understanding some of the, the verbs that are used in the Hebrew text there, um, that uh, we, we call them narrative preterites in, in Hebrew studies. That means uh, uh, preterite is just a fancy word for past tense, simple past tense. Uh, and the fact that we call it narrative means it's it's a kind uh, of simple past tense that you find, especially in storytelling, uh, used a lot in sequential action. You know, so-and-so did this, and then she did that, and then she went on and did the other thing. Uh, well, I noticed as, as I was reading through the first and second accounts, you know, chapter one, you know, then God said, Vayomer Elohim, Yehi Or, let light be. And light was, <laughs> then light was, you know. So that's that sequence, you know. Then he said, and then it came to be. And then he saw that it was good. Uh, no, no problem so far. That's the first creation narrative. And it comes to a conclusion in what is now for us chapter two, but that's not an original chapter division. You know, that these chapter divisions were a later creation. Uh, and it's unfortunate uh, that that decision was made to chop the narrative right there because it really concludes, uh, as, as we all know, after that seventh day of rest, uh, the Shabbat, which, which uh, Elohim, God, sanctifies. And that concludes a nice week's work. Uh, so there I was, you know, reading that. And again, nothing was surprising me. But then I noticed this new beginning of, of a segment uh, you know, th these are the accounts of the heavens and the earth on the day they were created. 
Uh, and as I was reading this for myself, oh, that, that introductory formula uh, is something in, in our language studies we call disjunctive. Uh, in other words, it, it makes a break and it arrests the reader's attention, especially in, in that original language, uh, as if to indicate a new thing is beginning. In fact, it's the very same formula that's used. Uh, it's called the Toledot formula in, in Hebrew. Toledot can be translated generations as well. Uh, so these are the generations of Abraham. These are the generations of Isaac. That may sound familiar from Genesis. But each time yeah. that happens in Genesis, you are starting an entirely new section. So that was the first thing that jumped to my eyes from off the page. Nobody was, nobody was you know, standing in a lecture hall telling me this. I was seeing it for myself. Uh, and, and then as I continued to read uh, deeper into chapter 2, I noticed uh, that there was a different sequence of creation this time around. Uh, I, I noticed that profound statement that, you know, uh, at, at the beginning of all these things, uh, that none of the, the plants of the, of the earth had yet sprouted. And I had just read chapter one, and I remembered, well, he caused them to sprout in chapter one uh, on, that, on that third day. And then on the sixth day, he created man. But in this one, uh, it says precisely that they had not sprouted because there was no humankind there to work the earth. Uh, and, and so that stood out to me. Oh, so they're not created because there's, there's no point for them sprouting out yet. But it also it, it registered with me. This is a different order here. And then, uh, and this is not always reflected well in English translations. Uh, in fact, the majority that I can call to mind do not always represent this as a sequence like, like it is in Hebrew. But, you know, then it talks about uh, Yahweh God, and there's also the change in name there. Now, now it's not just Elohim, but it's Yahweh or Yahweh Elohim. Uh, and, and the text in Hebrew is very clear. Then he formed man out of the dust. And there's wordplay there as well, which is a lovely thing in the Hebrew. He made Adam. Uh, a guy whose name is humankind, which is a little comical, a little silly, you know. It's like if he goes to a convention, yeah. he wears the name tag. My name is uh, all y'all, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I am mankind, yeah. Uh, and from, you know, from, from the Adama, he makes Adam. He makes humankind. But it's also used in that singular sort of sense. He is the man. He is Adam. Uh and so there's that wordplay, but it's also the idea that in sequence, then he formed him. Then, once again, as indicated better by the original Hebrew text, you know, then he planted a garden, and he then caused to sprout all of these plants and so forth. Uh, so there again, there's that different order. Oh, now the plants are coming up out of the soil, whereas uh, they preceded humans in the first creation account. And... Uh, then you have uh, Yahweh God deliberating, as you recall in chapter two, right? It's not good for the man to be alone. Uh, and once again, following the, the actual language there, the Hebrew, it should be read as then he formed from the dust. You know, once again, using the soil, he formed all of these creatures and he brought them to the man. Uh, and and so this, this also is a point of departure. Oh, the the creatures were created after man, whereas in the first creation account, all these land creatures were created before humankind. Uh, and, and it fills a different role as well in this narrative. This time around, if you're paying attention to the wording, 
what, what has been put on the table as the chief crisis of chapter two is uh, we need a partner for this man. And so then God forms the, the creatures of the earth and brings them before him. We have focused largely in Christian traditions on, oh, he gets to name the animals. And you'll notice this as well, right? In, in our children's Bibles, we, we are, are uh, taught innocently enough to start thinking this way when we're kids. You see Adam and Eve together naming the animals, don't you? Yes. Mm-hmm. In many yes. Bibles, yeah. Uh, but if you read that text carefully, no, it's Adam who is naming them. Uh, and with really with the major purpose being not that they're heavy handed about it. The author isn't, but the purpose is, is, is this a good mate? Is this someone who will be a, a good helper? You know, that who will, uh, be your partner in this. And the idea is, you know, no, you know, thanks. <laughs> thanks for coming in for the interview. You know, <laughs> you, you can go one after the other, he names and he dismisses. Next. Yeah. Next. <laughs> And then finally, you know, he enters a deep sleep that Yahweh God puts on him and uh, he uh, and, and, and sleep. And that's the realm of dreams. Right. Uh, which is punctuated with a lot of significance in ancient Eastern contexts, because that's how God uh, can potentially speak to you. You know, and yeah. amazing things can happen from the divine in your sleep. So he is made to fall into the sleep and wakes up to find, oh, you know, now, and I think a good way to translate the text here is finally, this one, <laughs> he says in Hebrew, now, finally, uh, this one is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, you know, and for this reason, she shall be called woman. And that works conveniently well in English as, as it does in Hebrew. Uh, ish is the word for man and isha uh, for woman. So they sound similar and it's another word play. That is really, really cool. That's so interesting. And in terms of the the differences between the creation accounts, you know, that's something that I have read after. And that's something, you know, just from a cursory view of the English, you can make out some of those differences in the created order from chapter one to chapter two. But from what you're saying is, is it's, it's really blatantly obvious in the Hebrew. And you yes, don't have but not, to, not always in translation. Yeah. Yeah. Some translations will say, now God had caused the beasts of the, <laughs> the earth to, to come for you. He had formed them. But that's not the Hebrew. The Hebrew is then he did it. Yeah. So, well, and, and, and to me, it just seems like that this is, a, you don't have to go very far in the Bible before you begin to see these, these multivocal perspectives. Yeah. And these and these different points of view. So, in this, in your own private study, was this the first time that the multivocality of the Old Testament really began to come to light for you? I think perhaps it was. I mean, where it was really striking me in private on my own terms, uh, and and I was realizing for myself that, that that firsthand way, you know, that I wasn't. I knew for myself I wasn't being indoctrinated. I wasn't being taught this. It was it was based on my language studies, and uh, and and it was it was an easy enough entry into this idea of of the many voices of the Hebrew Bible, especially considering that whoever is doing that final compiling of this version of Genesis as we know it, clearly this person being a speaker of the Hebrew language wouldn't have have uh, missed that very key point that these are two different. Uh, you know, considerably different takes on how creation happened. And yet that person seems to have been content living with that tension. Yes. And that, that started to open up new vistas for me, you know, new possibilities. Okay. If this 
this author, this compiler of the sacred text is okay with that. Maybe I need to learn to be. And, and that's huge. That is absolutely huge because, and it goes back to kind of what we were talking about before we went live. It's, you know, it's really hard to be okay with this sometimes whenever you have been, and I don't want to use the word indoctrinated because that's, it's really stronger than, than the sure, than yeah. the sense that I want to communicate. But you know, my parents raised me with train. There you go, Kevin. Mm-hmm. But my parents trained me with a very specific type of, of perspective on what the scriptures are, you know, the order, how they are to be read and how they are to be, to be measured, how we elucidate truth from them. And in that, it, it, whenever you begin to see things like what you notice in the Genesis account, it, be, it can begin to unravel those underpinnings that we have been trained to believe and accept just as de facto truth. And whenever that happens, it, it can create some issues. You know, well, what do you mean there's tensions in the Old Testament? What do you mean there's there's blatant contradictory statements if we approach it from this woodenly literal perspective? If the Bible is God's word, if it is, you know, the word of God and the will of God revealed to man, which I do believe that it is, well, then why don't we accept it for what it is, appreciate it for what it is, and learn how those tensions play with one another and how they can actually strengthen our faith. And I know for me, being able to approach the scriptures on that term, it has it has deepened my faith and it has deepened my appreciation for scripture and what it is. Now, Grant, just to summarize everything, especially for the the common person listening to this, because this is a lot of information. And quite frankly, some of this may be a little over their head. Um, And I'm not saying that in a derogatory way at all, but, you know, this is something you've spent years studying. You're a professor. You have your doctorates in this. And so some of this uh, is, I know, very easy for you. But for the audience, the first time that they're hearing this, one of their questions may be, so what you're saying is that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, because they're so different, they're different in their structures, they're different in the details, that it would appear that they're, that this this was from two different authors, that Genesis 1 was written by an author and Genesis 2 was written by an author. And so if that's the case, then explain a little bit in more detail how it could be the case that one book, Genesis, could have two different authors, especially with chapter one and chapter two, because the way that I was taught to read the Bible, probably the way that a lot of fundamentalists were taught to read the Bible is that, you know, the book, each book had an author and that author wrote everything within that book. And in the case of the Pentateuch, Moses wrote all five is what I was taught. Mm -hmm. And so even, even though if you don't go that far, some would say, well, but wasn't Genesis still just written by one person? So how could you have one author writing Genesis 1 and one author writing Genesis 2? Quickly, if you will, and I don't say quickly because it's going to be <laughs> difficult to do that, I know, but yeah. just kind of give an overview <laughs> of deconstructing the way we think of writing books today versus how the Bible was compiled, even when we're talking about the same, what came to be the same book. 
Okay, well, there's a lot there. So, uh, in two minutes, you, my, you have, you have two minutes. And, and by the way, I do, I do this with all of our audience, uh, or I do this with all of our guests. I'll ask a question that has 30 questions in it. <laughs> yeah. And then say, answer quickly. Yeah. Answer this yeah, quickly. Um, <laughs> take your time, brother. Take all the time you want. It's our podcast. We can make it however oh, long we want it to I be. I know. Yeah. You can, you can speed <laughs> me up on, <laughs> yeah. Give me the chipmunk voice later. But, um, now, I, this is why I start uh, with baby steps. You know, this is why we begin with what what could we all reasonably acknowledge just to begin with? And and so, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to assume that your your readers can all get on your listeners can all get on board with the idea uh, that across these many books of the Old Testament, not all of them are going to be written by the same author. You know, so we nod. OK, yeah, we, we get that. Uh and so what you're you're getting at is this next level. And, of and by the way, for for a lot of people, yeah. that is a new revelation. I, I remember when I first heard be, that. Yeah. that yeah. You know, wow, you're you're this one book Genesis. It wasn't just written by one person, or you know, or any book of the of the Old Testament for that matter. There could have been several different authors within this one book. That's right. Yeah. So that's this next level, right? Yeah. So where where we say, okay, but now you're asking me to take this this next big step and. And uh, consider that even a single book has more than one author, potentially. And uh, so, I mean, one thing I would start by establishing is that this process of discovery happened uh, not because people were trying to thwart the scriptures. Uh, And and I think this is the impression that a number of us have had over the years. I know I did um, uh, years ago when I first heard some of these things and and I I didn't give it credence. so I, I do want to reiterate that uh, just like my own personal experience of reading that Hebrew text, and not because I was being told, but there it was right in front of me, I realized it. Um, this has been the case for many, many scholars in the field of biblical studies, uh, who many of whom even have maintained their faith uh, well into their careers. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it's because they, in fact, were devoted students of, of the Bible. You know, they, they took it so seriously in many cases uh, as their home congregations told them. Uh, so that's, that's just a little, <laughs> uh, um, a quick aside. Uh, yeah. A quick yeah. aside. You and know, by to, the to way, I, I finally just got what you were saying earlier about how the Bible itself was written by many different authors. Yes. I think yeah, all of our yeah. audience would definitely you get on board. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I agree with that, but it's, it's the mul- it's, it's, it's having one. multiple authors with one book. That is a, is a challenge for a lot of people. Yeah. So, you know, I mean that, that case in point that, that, uh, that awakening moment that I had, um, that I, I wouldn't have asked for, you know, it, it's precisely that it, it was, it was discoveries like that, that have led uh, those of us in scholarship of the Hebrew Bible uh, to s- start seeing, okay, this is a different text. It reads differently. It has a different style. And in some cases, uh, as I mentioned with archaic biblical Hebrew being different from uh, later classical Hebrew uh, or post-exilic Hebrew for that matter, which also looks different. Um, uh, sometimes it's the language, sometimes it's the style, sometimes it's both. Uh, and they start to rise to the surface and you say, okay, I'm dealing with different texts. And this is like what, Lee, what you were saying earlier. When If you dive into Elizabethan style English all of a sudden, we will notice <laughs> as, yes. as native speakers. But let's say that you took that combination of our modern 21st century colloquial English uh, paired with Elizabethan side by side and ask somebody to translate that into another language, say Japanese, 
well, if that person just was thinking in terms of, oh, how do I translate uh, for for natural meaning today in Japanese, then uh, they that person might not represent the difference in tone between those two styles of English. Uh, so something very similar has happened in, in Hebrew. Uh, so you start to realize things like that, and you can't you can't unsee that once you see it. Um, there are other things that the, even those who you know who haven't spent years studying Hebrew, and I don't expect everybody to do that, um, can see for themselves. Uh, I mean, you I think you yourself were mentioning, uh, you know, it seems a little strange for Moses to say. Uh, you know that he was the most humble man on the <laughs> yeah. face on the face of the earth that even said, yeah, "Yes, I was." Uh, <laughs> I agree you know, with the Holy Spirit. I, I am yes. the most humble. <laughs> Air five, you know. <laughs> but then, uh, it, it, and it's it's revelations like that, or reading uh, the death of Moses. You know, <laughs> and, and and you imagine the classic model that I think many of us perhaps had in mind. Uh, of Moses just sitting and taking dictation from from the heavens, and uh, you know, writing his own death narrative. What what's that, Lord? Uh, come again? <laughs> Can we change that part? Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, you, you start to see more and more as you read the text attentively. Uh, that e- even in English translation, you can spot some of these differences. One one that I show students. Um, uh, comes from Genesis 36. It's the the narrative or the the account of all of these descendants of Esau, right? The uh, the people who will become Edom. And uh, there's this passing comment. I'm forgetting the verse offhand, but but the writer says, you know, these were the rulers of Edom who who ruled before uh, there was a king over the children of Israel. And if you're reading very attentively, so wait, before there was a king over Israel. Why would Moses, or for that matter, anybody in Moses' time, mention something that's not even relevant to them if they don't have yeah. a king? Yeah. You know, so if you're picking up on it, you say, oh, this was written, at least this text here, this portion, was written by somebody during the monarchical period of Israel, probably. I mean, that seems that seems most likely. Um, so it's well, those, and, those and conclusions can I, can... start to come together. Yeah. Let me interrupt you for a minute to give you the kind of answers that I was fed in response to that to show sure. just how bad they are. And I, and I look, I'm not saying that to be derogatory toward people who believe this, but you get to a point to realize it's nothing but special pleading because you already have a belief that you think you have to have in order to to, to even have faith sometimes, you know, there's these dichotomies, these false dichotomies that if this is not true, then there's no God and people, okay, well, if that's the case, I've got to make this work no matter how absurd it sounds. And when you have instances of someone writing in, a, in that time, clearly it had to be someone who knew about the Kings. Well, Moses wouldn't have had a clue about the Kings. So, What's going on? The answer that I actually gave at times, because this is what I, I thought I had to have an answer. So when people asked me that question in some Q&As in times past, when I thought I had all the answers to everything, or at least I thought I had to have all the answers to everything, <laughs> I said, well, God inspired Moses with that information. And even though Moses didn't understand what he was writing, God uh, inspired Moses through the Holy Spirit to go ahead and write that down anyway. And when you look at that answer, 
it is literally just pulling something from the sky. I mean, you're just saying, okay, what could we possibly say? And and we and, and you know, when you get to that point of thinking it has to fit, you would say, well, it's a possibility, so it can't be mm-hmm. a contradiction. As long as there is a possibility, it doesn't matter if that possibility is one in fifty billion, you know, jillion, bazillion. It doesn't matter. You, it's a possibility. Okay, but once you see that. Example after example after example after example after example of these types of things. At what point do you finally say, huh, maybe I'm not being honest with what I'm seeing here. Maybe I'm just trying to fill the gap with with validation for what I already believe instead of looking at the true information to make sure that I'm properly understanding this. And so I just wanted to point that out, not to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but to let to yeah, let people know... Well, to let people know two things. Number one, yes, there are answers you can find to every single one of these uh, contradictions or conflicts and tensions we're going to be talking about. There are apologists out there who believe that they have to somehow resolve these tensions and they have an answer for it. So if you want to find why, why they believe it's out there. But my second point is, if you dig a little deeper, if you spend more than 10 minutes on these articles... In my opinion, you're going to you're going to find that they just don't do a very good job and in many cases can lead to more of a faith crisis than anything else, because you start to realize this just really isn't these aren't good answers. Um, We're not really accepting the text for what it is. And you and, and you feel a sense of dishonesty. I started to feel a sense of dishonesty that I was not handling the text with all of my intellectual honesty. And and that's really what helped to change me. Uh, now, I, I do want to shift gears just for a few minutes here and talk about some other examples, because I think it's important yeah. for our audience to know, you know, it's not just a couple in Genesis. One that you and That's I have right. talked about um, that that really rocked my world were what were the, is the example of the Old Testament slave laws. And I'll, I'll give this as an example to springboard into some more examples that you can share. But this one for me was the kicker because you have an Exodus 21, one through seven. It says that Jews can own other Jews as slaves, but only the male can go free after six years. And the master doesn't have to furnish anything for the slave when the slave is set free. But then you come to Deuteronomy and it says the same thing as far as Jews owning other Jews as slaves, that yes, you can do that. But it says that the male and the female can go free after six years and that they should not leave empty handed, but the master has to furnish them when they are set free. And then you come to Leviticus 25, 39 through 46. And it says, no, Jews can't own Jewish slaves or rule over them, male or female. They cannot do it because they were slaves in Egypt and they know what it's like. And so they can't own another Jew as a slave. Uh, they can only be used as a hired worker, and they can uh, only work for them until the year of Jubilee. Well, I, when I saw this, I started just to study and study and study and study, and I'm like, well, maybe I can fill in the gaps here. Maybe I can take the three books here and make this into one law. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I realized that not only is that approach, uh, it, it's not fair to the text because obviously, that's not how they understood these texts. You know, they weren't looking at all three of these and trying to put them all together. But also, when you do, when you did when you do try to put them all together, they can't say the same thing. Either you can own a Jewish slave, or you can't. If you can, either the male and female can go free, 
are just the male. And, and so you start to get into all of these tensions within that that are pure. And I don't really shy away from the word contradiction because you know, I don't, I'm not trying to fit the Bible into a box. I'm not trying to say, well, the Bible has to fit this mold. It can fit whatever mold God wants it to fit in. You know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, if, if, if this is the book we have and I believe God gave it to us, I've got to accept it the way God gave it to us. And mm-hmm. so that, that was one for me, the Old Testament slave laws that really just uh, kind of rocked my world. And I actually found one website this has been a while back. I don't even remember what it was, but it's supposedly an inerrant defending website. And it actually said, I really don't, the guy actually said, I don't know how to answer this. And I appreciated him being honest enough, but then he led off with, but there is an answer out there. We just don't have it. And, you know, that's something else that I run into a lot when there are conflicts within the Bible is, well, we may not have the answer, but there is one and we're eventually going to find it. It may, we may not be in our lifetime, but eventually we're going to find it. And, and it's kind of just that, uh, like, like hopeless, like, you know, mm-hmm. like, 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 or, or not hopeless, but just hopeful. Well, we're going to find it because we have to find it. Yeah. <laughs> and so what are, what are some examples for you in addition to Genesis that throughout the old Testament that you feel are really clear cut? Uh, as I feel like this one is a clear-cut issue, mm-hmm. that demonstrate conflict and tensions and that you can clearly see that, okay, someone wrote Exodus, someone wrote Deuteronomy, and someone lo- wrote Leviticus, and they weren't the same people writing these laws because they all wrote something different mm-hmm. and and really contradictory. They con- conflict if you put them side by side. What are some other laws or some other text on history that we see throughout the Old Testament where, where you believe that we clearly see um, some of that taking place. Yeah, yeah. I, I like, first of all, Kevin, how you, you put it when you, you're talking about intellectual honesty, when when we we give up the fight, which to some might sound like defeat, but you start to realize, oh, I don't have to fight. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't have to fight, and it, and it becomes this this wonderful uh, peace uh, that uh, I would very much say is God given when you give up the one fight and and embrace uh, this this newfound sense of grace. Not that you didn't understand grace in any capacity, absolutely not, but but you're seeing new new waves of grace. So, um, but going back to your question here, this is where it gets to that next level. So that first level, we start to realize, okay, that there are different authors for different books. Okay, no problem. Then there are multiple authors who have some slightly different ways, at least of saying some things, who contributed to a given book, one book, you know, like, like a Genesis. Uh, but then this next level, it gets more serious. And uh, here is where I would say, you know, n- not all the examples I'm going to give will convince everybody. Uh, and this is partly why I like to hear different people's stories. Uh, um, like Kevin, when you and I met not too long ago, right, a month or so, um, you know, just finding out what were those moments for you where it started to, unravel some old conceptions. Um, so for me, uh, an, another big revelatory moment came when I was reading the, the opening to the prophet Hosea. Uh, and it doesn't take long. It's, it's Hosea chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, in fact, I, I have the text ready here because I anticipated this kind of uh, <laughs> of a question. Um, and by the yeah, way, Hosea, we are literally going off of zero outline. We are just we are just oh, riffing yeah. it tonight. <laughs> yeah. 
but that's that's me just being overprepared. <laughs> uh, no, we we normally don't, you know, and that's what we like to tell our audience. We really just like ha- <laughs> we like having real conversations with people. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, just just to catch everybody up, you know, this is that that part of the Hosea Hosea's prophetic book which is part story. You know, and this is uh, Hosea taking uh, this woman of fornication and having uh, these children with her. And then each of these children has a very tragic name uh, and what sounds like a very sad upbringing. Uh, but the, the first child is named Jezreel. And here's the text. It says, then Yahweh said to him, um, and I, I hope I'm not offending any listeners. I use the name Yahweh because that was what ancient Israelites would have have said. Uh, I re- I do realize that in later Second Temple period Judaism, uh, the practice began of saying Lord instead Adonai uh, of the divine name. But um, I use it to be uh, historically, you know, contextualized. So then Yahweh said to him, to Hosea, that is. Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I shall account the blood of Jezreel against the household of Jehu, and I shall put an end to the kingdom of the household of Israel. So that's that's one thing if you don't have any context for that, and it sounds like a lot of stock language that you'll hear elsewhere in prophets, this language of, you know, I shall account um, something, you know, such and such against or over the head of so-and-so. Uh, what that means is basically, you know, the, the person who is having something accounted against them, that person has a deficit. The, 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 in this case, the books of justice have not been balanced. And so God will account that very thing and will balance the scales. So when he says, I shall account the blood of Jezreel, that means that some kind of bloodshed at Jezreel uh, must have been committed by the household of Jehu. And that's what's being accounted against them, meaning... You know, the, the implication is that there will be some punishment coming from Yahweh uh, that answers to that bloodshed of Jezreel. So we follow along, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it occurred to me that what this is talking about uh, comes from the text of Second Kings uh, that talks about the ascent of Jehu to the throne of Israel. And in that text, uh, uh, Jehu is treated as the the king appointed by Yahweh to uh, to hold a coup against the household of Ahab and and take over uh, the, the rulership of Israel, as if this is all his God-given task. Um, and the language, here's just a, a piece of that coming from chapter 9, but the fuller account is chapters 9 and 10. Uh, it says, then the prophet said, uh, beginning in verse 6, then the prophet said to Jehu, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. I have anointed you as king over Yahweh's people, over Israel, and you shall smite the household of your Lord Ahab, that I may be avenged of the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all Yahweh's servants at the hand of Jezebel. And that's the part of the, the account that we're all quite familiar with. Yeah, the, the household of Ahab should fall because of all those wicked things that we hear in, in that greater narrative. Uh, but what we might miss out on if if we're not reading carefully both those chapters, 9 and 10, is not only is this uh, Jehu being told, you know, you're going to replace Ahab, uh, but you will do so with the sword. <laughs> you, you, you will, you know, rain wrath down on his head. Uh, and this is all the will of Yahweh. That's, that's from the narrator's perspective. 
um, or at least you know the, the prophet that the narrator is is uh, is supposed to be quoting here. This is the will of Yahweh. This is the will of the Lord. And Jehu goes about doing that, you know, cutting throats left and right. And and it comes in chapter ten to this uh, very bloody climax. Uh, that uh, I mean, it would make Braveheart blush uh, because uh, <laughs> you know he. It takes place in the Valley of Jezreel. This is where a number of uh, these descendants of Ahab, his sons, grandsons, uh, very likely great-grandsons by this point too, um, are, are holed up in the Valley of Jezreel uh, under protection of some guardians. And, uh, and Jehu sends message to them saying, hey, decide for yourselves. Do you want to defend uh, these, these descendants of the household, the dynasty of Ahab? Uh, in which case you better get ready for war <laughs> because I'm coming. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, you can make peace with me. And, and so uh, they negotiate these terms and they decide, well, Jehu is a force to be reckoned with. They don't want to touch that. And so they end up slaughtering uh, uh, all the, the 70 sons of Ahab. Remember, son is a general term. So we would have to imagine that many of these so-called sons of the text are little children as well because they too would be potential heirs to the throne. And so this is a massive slaughter, including very likely the slaughter of children. Uh, and if you, if, if you take the time to even try to imagine what that would look like, which is not a fun thing to try to do, um, you would have to recognize uh, that it is a vicious slaughter. And, and if you scrutinize this text and you know, what it's saying, I mean, here's, here's a text advocating, you, know, you are the God-ordained king. What king in history doesn't think that he is? You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And and how many kings have had such kind of of propagandistic writing made about them uh, to support the throne and their legitimacy to the throne? Uh, and so, what I started to realize is now here's a very pro Jehu text which paints him in a flattering light. He's doing the work of the Lord in killing all these kids and and young men who who belong to the household of Ahab. Uh, surely not all of whom are as wicked as Ahab. <laughs> and, uh, and oh, and it's pretty convenient for him as well that he gets to step up to the throne now that it's <laughs> vacant. And, but how convenient. Really, yeah, how convenient for you. Uh, <laughs> but it, it stuck out to me uh, most strongly because he, over here in Hosea, another book, another author, uh, but also somebody who is presuming to write in the name of the Lord, um, uh, you get a very different message that seems to spell out, you know, that bloodshed at Jezreel. And I don't think we could mistake that that, that has in mind this offing of all of these, these men of the household of Ahab. Uh, well, that's, that doesn't sit well with the Lord and he's going to hold you to account for that. Uh, yeah. So that, I see those in conflict. That is absolutely wild. And Jehu is one of those stories. For whatever reason, the books of Samuel Kings have always been fascinating to me. I've always enjoyed reading those books and those accounts. I mean, they read like an action movie. They they can make yeah. Game of Thrones look tame in a lot <laughs> yes, of ways. Yeah. And then you get into Chronicles and, and you get into, uh, I mean, and there are some tensions between what we see in Chronicles and what we see in Kings. I'm sure we, you know, we may talk about those. But one area of the scriptures I've never spent a lot of time in are the prophets. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time I have ever heard that connection from Hosea being linked to Jehu's slaughter of Ahab's descendants. That is absolutely mind-blowing. 
Grant, you're blowing my mind over here, bro. Well, hey, it, it blew my mind when it when it first you know came to my attention. Um, well, whenever yeah. whenever we see something so, like that, though, and something like that becomes more apparent like what do we do with that tension like how because we can talk about like kevin said special pleading as a means of reconciling some of these tensions within the text as it relates to that multivocality but mm -hmm. how do you resolve that yeah. as a scholar yeah well and and as a believing scholar as a christian you know who for whom these texts are <laughs> are my childhood texts some of that's a little disturbing when you think about some of these texts. <laughs> Jay, who is not a children's Jay, you're, story. You're yeah. Gonna like, uh, yeah, you're going to cross stitch this on a pillow. Yes. One second though, before you get yeah. to that, because I do want to, I do want to come back. <laughs> I do want to come back to that. Lee over here is dying out. We, we lost Lee. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> go, go ahead and spit your water out, Lee. It's all right. Oh, that's um, good. I do want to come back to Lee's question, but before I do, I want to even bring up some more tensions and some more contradictions. Oh, yeah. And, and I even, you know, earlier I said I don't mind using the word contradiction because I don't in a literal, straightforward way. But I don't think that this discredits the Bible. I think this is actually part of the Bible. It shows the realness of the Bible. And obviously the Jews themselves understood that there were great tensions. Um, and they oftentimes debated these types of things. And they didn't think that it discredited the uh, inspiration of Scripture or, or God or anything of that nature. But I, I want to do a couple things. Um First of all, can I read, we're talking about special pleading, because as you're saying these things, mm -hmm. when I first started hearing this, I thought, well, this just seems too, like, too easy. Like, how in the world did I miss this? I mean, if this is, if what, if what you're saying is true, why did I never, I went to preaching school. How in the world did I never hear this? And that was my first thought. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I, we went through every book of the Bible. We went, we went through the prophets. We went through the, the kings. And I'm thinking to myself, why was this never brought up? Why was this never discussed? Why did I never catch this? And so, so when, I, when I first heard this example that you gave, and I, and I heard it a, probably a couple of years ago when I was reading a book, and I thought, no, this has got to be easily answered. I want to explain to folks, this isn't easily answered. <laughs> this is a true tension. And I want to read, just like I did earlier, kind of to give the, the supposed rebuttal to this. This is in um, the website defendinginerrancy.com. Now, if you're going to have a name like that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume your answer is probably going to be kind of the norm answer, right? I, I don't think that's unfair for me to assume that. More than likely, if you're going to have a website called Defending Inerrancy, then whatever reason you give to explain this supposed contradiction is probably supposed is probably going to be pretty good. I, I should have reason to believe, okay, this is going to settle everything that Grant mm -hmm. just said. We got defending inerrancy, man. So I'm going to read you what they said. So this is their solution to the problem. And it's only one, it's like two sentences or three sentences. This is what they said. God praised Jehu for obeying him in destroying the house of Ahab. But he condemned Jehu and Hosea for his sinful motive in shedding their blood. Although 2 Kings 10.30 states that God told Jehu that he had done right in killing the relatives of Ahab, the previous verse observes that Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, from the golden calves, etc. In verse 31 states that Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all of his heart. Therefore, obviously, 
Since Jehu worshipped other gods and did not walk in God's law, he did not destroy Ahab's family out of any devotion to the Lord, which is what Hosea would be meaning to say. So, <laughs> look, I, yeah. no no disrespect to, to defending inerrancy. They, they, I, I really think they're doing this out of the sincerity of their hearts. If I just heard what you said and I read that, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that doesn't even make sense. I, I mean, contextually, that answer doesn't even make sense as a proposed solution. If you know anything about the context, which let's be honest, most people probably don't. The average Christian sitting in the pew, I, let's just be honest, if you went up to them and said, hey, tell me a little bit about what's going on here and, you know, <laughs> in 2 Kings and, and kind of tell me what all you know, there's probably going to be not a whole lot there. And so when someone reads an answer like this, it may pacify those who feel like they need to, they, they need to have that answer pacified. But, but I've, I'm going to reiterate this, and I've already said it again. I want to say it over and over, ad nauseum, because these types of lessons are not for people who feel like they have to resolve the tensions. If you need that and that's what you think you have to have, that's out there. These are for people who have spent a little bit of time in the context. They've gone to inerrancy.com and other similar websites. They, that, that has not settled the tension for them. In fact, as I said before, sometimes that makes the tension even worse because they're like, if this is defending inerrancy mm -hmm. and this is all they have, like this is it? Like this is the only possible solution? This is this is not a good solution. And, and so we're trying to reach those who have gone beyond that point of saying, but is there another alternative? Instead of simply saying, maybe there's this weird contextual solution that I can't really see in scripture, but people are trying to make, is there another way of really just admitting that that's what's going on here? You, you, you have one understanding in second Kings and then in Hosea, you have a later prophet coming along and correcting that. And I want to give an example real quick because this stuff excites me because this really helped me actually grow my faith. Because for a while, I had a lot of questions. This stuff actually helped me to realize I this is part of my faith. This isn't against my faith or opposed to it. This is part of the Bible. It's not anti-Bible. But but this this one to me really, really is just an example that made me um, kind of realize that the Bible works in a completely different way than I thought it did. And it's it's very similar to the example you you used, except it's talking about history. And it's uh, in 2 Samuel 24, 1, it's the census where David's told to, to go and number the people. Yeah. And in 2 Samuel 24, it says that God commanded David to take the census but then after the exile, we, 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 you know, later, 1 Chronicles 21, 2, you have the chronicler, or the chronicler says that Satan told David to take the census. And so here, not only do you have a text in which two different authors are coming to different conclusions or understandings and perspectives on a, of an event, but in this case, you have one who attributes something to Satan and then another who coming along later is writing it from years removed saying that no actually it was it was uh it was Satan who who told Nathan to do this or to, uh who uh who told David to do this it wasn't God so was it God or was it Satan who did it and and and, and once again all sorts of quote unquote harmonies 
have have tried to be made. And I think here the harmony, when people try to harmonize this, they actually don't solve the dilemma. They properly define it because they'll say, well, God allowed the census to be numbered, but it was Satan who motivated it. Well, that doesn't solve the dilemma. That that puts it in proper perspective. That what mm-hmm. you have is at times something can be, a, and this was a huge revelation to me, something can be attributed to God, but actually it was Satan who was behind it. And that is, to me, just a powerful, powerful revelation right there. And so I, I bring that example up to say, and this kind of circles back to what Lee Lee was asking. What now do we do with all this? You know, when we say when we see later prophets correcting events that took place, or when we see the the chronicler writing his history, and it is the same history, but it is seen from a different perspective. Sometimes attributing events that were at one time attributed to to God now being attributed to Satan. What does this mean? Because this can send people into a tailspin. They can say, well. Goodness, Kevin, what can we trust in the Bible? I mean, how do we know Hosea was right? How do we know the Chronicler was right? And, and at, you know, at what mm-hmm. are we picking and choosing? And it can really confuse a lot of people when they start hearing these examples. And so what does this mean when we start to see these? If we accept it, if the person listening is they, they realize that websites like Defending Inerrancy, that's not going to cut it anymore. You know, if their faith needs something more, that, that that's there. There's too much cognitive dissonance for them to continue to believe that these tensions don't exist. Once they accept these tensions exist, what does that do now to how a Christian should understand and read the Old Testament? And is there any kind of tangible way to come to a conclusion that's not just so ambiguous where people can feel like they can just go and pick and choose what they feel is from God in the Bible versus what they feel is not from God? And and you've just articulated, I think, what for many of us is that initial fear when when we realize, yeah, this is here in the text. I may not like that, but it's here. Yeah. Uh, and and so it becomes that next step. I mean, first of all, that's what you were referring to earlier when you're talking about that intellectual honesty. You know, I'm, I'm using the intellect given to me by God <laughs> to to read carefully and. Uh, and, and this is what I've noticed, I've, I've read. Um, so I would advise anybody who is coming to such a, that, a moment of cognitive dissonance where you're, you know, this doesn't jive with what you thought the Bible was supposed to do, um, that you pause, you take a few deep breaths, if you have the luxury. <laughs> um, and, and hopefully in most cases, people will. You know, nobody has to rush you out of this moment. And there is a calming effect, biologically speaking, just to breathe a little bit and say, okay, what's at stake here? You know, and just because I'm seeing this, does this mean that all these other conclusions I might start to imagine in my head are also the case? You know, does it mean I have to lose my faith? I would say no. Uh, but, but that's going to be the decision of each person who comes to these realizations. Um, so, uh, one thing that was helpful for me in this process, uh, that nurtured my faith, helped me cultivate it. Uh, but at the same time with new realizations, you know, my faith could not look exactly like it did before. I will say that, um, was realizing, uh, as I, as I mentioned before, in a case like Genesis one and two, uh, it seemed pretty clear to me that the, the, that compiler who put these two, uh, different narratives side by side, 
probably noticed all those differences, especially as a Hebrew speaker, uh, and yet was okay with them being in conversation with each other, right next to each other even. Uh, a, a similar example of this same kind of thing, uh, I think you two probably know it well, comes from uh, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5, right? <laughs> that juxtaposition, yep. you know, answer a fool according to his folly. Oh, you know what? Don't answer Don't a fool. Answer according- a fool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and some people will try to get around it. And I tell them, you know, the, the same word for answer, the same word for fool, <laughs> the same word for folly in both those cases. So th- there's no trying to get around the language. Uh, these are in direct, immediate contradiction to each other. But that wouldn't have escaped the attention of the person who put them side by side in that finalized version of the collection of these wisdom sayings. But, but here is that wisdom, you know, that comes from the book of wisdom. It's this idea, can wisdom be found in seemingly uh, you know, uh, contradictory statements uh, where we might be so inclined to think, no, there's only the one position and it's black and white. It's very clear, but can we have a more subtle touch uh, can wisdom be found in the subtleties sometimes, in the gray spaces? And that started to come to me. What if? What is the writer getting at if there's these two versions of creation, one that takes place over, uh, over a week and another one that sounds like it's in a day and that has a different order? Well, what do they, first of all, what do they confirm between the two of them? You know, they, they both are confirming and affirming God is the creator of all. Uh, God gets the glory for that. They both have a high view of humanity. Uh, you know, that between the two, there, there's this uh, great communication of intimacy between God and humankind. Uh, that's something they have in common. But they, they go about it in some different ways. And so, too, uh, with those, those two seemingly uh, argumentative proverbs, you know, in argument with each other, uh, is there a little bit of wisdom to be had in each? You know, sometimes it's it's probably wise to answer a fool before you know he or she gets a little too big headed and and uh, might need some redirection. Uh, but there are other times when I think all of us hopefully are starting to realize uh, in this day and age that uh, we don't need to join all of these shouting matches all the time and and it. It just gets us in a world of trouble. So there's a little bit of wisdom for a given moment in both of those angles. Uh, But maybe it's not as simple as one or the other. Sometimes the one will serve you better and sometimes the other. But then, like you were getting at, Kevin, that that puts a new burden on us because now we're faced with, well, how then can I choose? You know, how, how do I know when this one, you know, is the right one to answer a fool? And, oh, man, I shouldn't have on that occasion. I should have not answered a fool. Um, and, and going back to that illustration I gave a moment ago of, of you know, Jehu, did what, he, did what he did to gain the throne, did that count as the work of God? You know, was that doing the Lord's work? Well, that too can be, can have a, a number of angles. I mean, for one thing, it sounds from these accounts, like Ahab, uh just acted in such villainous ways uh, that he that he defrauded people, that he executed people unjustly, uh, that he was leading the people uh, into a form of state-sponsored religion that really just supported uh, the growth of his his kingdom and and economy uh, in the form of Baalism. 
uh, you know, there's so much bloodshed already connected with that household that the downfall of such a dynasty is not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but is can we also say in the same breath that Hosea, speaking in the name of the Lord, uh, had a touch of inspiration himself and that it was a little, like I said earlier, a little too convenient for Jehu to ascend to the throne um, and claiming this is all the Lord's work to slaughter every last heir of Ahab. And, uh, and that sounds too convenient. And, and when you really take into account that, that narrative of how that bloodshed went down, uh, it, it sounds as though it was truly vicious. Uh, and and that this was a bloodthirsty individual uh, who was really clawing for power. Uh, let's not pretend that he was doing this, uh, you know, as as a good Sunday school boy. <laughs> no, no. Well, and whenever you look at the story of Jehu himself, and you get into Second Kings ten, and you look at that account where these descendants of Ahab are killed. You know, after they're killed, what does Jehu tell them to do? He says, take their heads, put them in baskets and put them outside the gates overnight. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if bloodthirstiness is not in your, in your mind, if that's not a driving motivating factor, you're not going to pile up the heads in baskets and put them outside the gates. I mean, it's, it seems as though there is some of that going on. And Hosea seems to confirm that. Yeah. As as it relates to a, an even more blatant contradiction, like what Kevin was saying, though, with um, the census of David being something directed by God in the book of the Kings mm-hmm. or in Samuel Kings and the chronicler saying, no, this was something that, you know, was motivated by Satan, that that seems like that is a little more cut and dried. With, with Jehu, you can see some nuance between the account we read in Kings and with what Hosea says. You can see how, you know, yeah, God was with Jehu in the in eliminating the, the lineage of Ahab, but, you know, Hosea is taking him to task for the bloodthirstiness that he possessed. You know, mm-hmm. but, you know that you can see how that might work because there's some nuance there. Mm-hmm. But but what do you do with something like the the contradiction that exists or the tension, you might say, that exists between what the author of Samuel King says about that coming from God, the census and the chronicler saying it came from the devil? Like, yeah. how, how do we unpack that? So, yeah, and, and that's yeah. not the only time either that no, that we no. see that because it, it seems to me that if you want people to listen to you, especially if you live during the Old Testament times, and by the way, people still do this today. If they want people to listen to them, while well, they say God, God told me this, um, I, you know, God, God wants me to do this. This comes from God. God said this, and a lot of bad things have been done because people believed that there was authority. And people are assumed by that word authority because it's almost synonymous with power. It's the idea that, well, if I can get people to believe that God is with me, then people will start to listen to what I have to say. And and you see this a lot in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I actually I wanted to go ahead and pull this up. Um, we have kind of a running joke where anything we talk about on the program, I say I'm writing about this in my new book. <laughs> Half the time I'm lying, but sometimes I'm I'm actually telling the truth on that. Um, and th- this is this is one of those instances where I actually am talking about this because I think it is such a 
uh, a good example, a or at least a clear example, to show when one author believed something was was from God, or at least wrote that somebody believed it was from God, and then another came along and said, no, it wasn't, it was from Satan. Mm -hmm. But you see, uh, you know, you, you see uh, times when even like Zedekiah says, uses the phrase, thus says the Lord when trying to make a pronouncement that actually wasn't from God. We see that in 1 Kings 22, uh, 10 and 12. And we see in Jeremiah 23, 17 through 31, how even Jeremiah is talking about the phrase declares the Lord is often used and mm -hmm. it's used in ways that people are abusing it. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I find it ironic, even Jeremiah is saying, I'm speaking on behalf of God, but there are people who claim they're speaking on behalf of God who will say declares the Lord or who will who who will attribute something to God when that when that's not the case. And I think the whole book of Job is another instance of that, because what are they doing? Well, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm, I'm is this God or is this Satan? What's going on here? Uh, you know, why why is uh, you know, why, why are these things happening? Well, God's punishing you. But in reality, while they were attributing these things to God, the story says it was because of Satan. And so you you have all of these different things, these kind of these ideas that are often seen people kind of debating, is this from God? Is it not from God? And, and, and yeah, going back to what Lee was asking, I think that is what is so scary to people because they're like, wait a minute, if one person can understand something was God's will and then another person come along in the Bible, because at this point, we're not just talking about preachers today. We're talking about voices in the Old Testament that we all believe are inspired who are saying, yes, God, this was God. No, this was not God. This was Satan. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. if you have the hate groups out there, whereas probably all three of us would say, yeah, that that was probably Satan's doing, um, you know, because I, I my conclusion is that as the Jews continue to learn, they start some of these older, more sinister type of acts that were once attributed to Satan. Now they begin to mature in their faith and say, well, wait a minute. Or, or I'm sorry, that were attributed to God. Now they realize this isn't God. Our God is good. God wouldn't do something like this. This must have been the work of Satan. Well, that's what we would say. But then you have, like, let's say Westboro Baptist, who they say God hates everybody. And they go and they go, well, you know what? The Chronicler was wrong. And it was the, the, the original author had it right. And it was actually, you know, it was God behind this. And God's the one who causes pain. And God's the one who causes suffering. And it was God who, who calls uh, the massacre and, and kings. And you start getting into all of that. And so how mm -hmm. do you start to bring forth an objective some sort of a tangible objective gauge to say, this is why I think this author was right as opposed to this author in their understanding. Yeah. Well, I, th I think it will come down at some level to, uh, to something that is ultimately undefinable uh, because it has to do with maturity. You know, when, when you, any of us owns our maturity for ourselves, when we step into adulthood, um, or, or any number of stages, because, you know, even once we're adults, we have a few more stages to go through, too. Um, but for each of those stages, we have to own that for ourselves or not. We can be in denial. Uh, but some of it comes and it's this is scary territory. This is why we have so many great novels about coming of age. Right. Um, where you realize, oh, mom and dad can't do that for me anymore. Uh uh, and, and this is not, you know, when it's realized very well in writing and movies and so forth, uh, it's, it's a realization of, 
of responsibility. That's maturity, uh, where you you take on that mantle uh, and you say, "I've I've got to be the adult that I was always looking to lead me before." Uh, and I think there's some of this that you, you see in Jesus's own teachings. You know, the, the number of times he talks about your Father in heaven. Um, and what it is to be children who reflect that father. Uh, it sounds like Jesus in his ministry is, is trying to do this very thing and, and is still trying to push us, his church, <laughs> to, to grow up and, and, and uh, learn to be like the Heavenly Father. But it's still going to be that question, what is our Heavenly Father like? And, and you know, how, how do we become assured of that? It's one thing to say, well, the text says so, but... We have to remind ourselves, this is being brutally honest yet again, there are so many types of scripture out there that are not the Bible as Christians know it. Uh, I mean, for one thing, we have to remember that that for a number of uh, Jews that do not recognize uh, Jesus of Nazareth as being the Messiah, uh, that what is scripture for us, the New Testament, is not for them. Uh, but then there are entirely other bodies of scripture, you know, the, the Bhagavad Gita, the, uh, the Quran for, for Islam and, and so forth. And, uh, and any number of people growing up in a faith tradition like that, you know, could just as well be told, this is where you will hear the voice of God, you know, here and not in those other texts. So it comes back to that question, how do any of us know? <laughs> uh and how could we know if we're not born in a context where where we were raised with the Bible? Um, if if we hear Paul correctly, it sounds like Paul. And now I'm lapsing into New Testament stuff, but I am a Christian too. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, but that's not, that's not what you're a scholar in. Just to, no, no. <laughs> no. I'm going to err greatly here, but. But Paul makes multiple appeals to reason, to something that he imagines is already in his listeners, uh, an ability to hear truth, to chew on it for themselves, and and quite possibly uh, uh, see see things the way he's trying to lay it out, if if indeed what he's proclaiming is truth. Uh, and and this is what helps him go into so many different cultural contexts in his day, and preach the gospel of this Jesus with the confidence these people who didn't grow up with Jewish scriptures, they can still realize some of these, these universals of truth. I'm sure they can. Uh, otherwise, why would he go? So I think it comes down to when you start to see this plurality of voices, um, that language might sound scary, but, but a number of voices that sometimes conflict with each other, like the prophet Nahum saying, die, Assyria, die. And then the prophet Jonah, well, the prophet Jonah actually would agree, but his book would disagree. <laughs> you know, the writer of the book of Jonah uh, actually has a message of compassion for, of all people, those horrific, uh, you know, heathen Assyrians. Uh, and what do you do with that? You know, it's, I, I think then it, it becomes a question of maturity. Kids can't fully answer that question for themselves. And, and I do think that there's still some merit in, in showing our children, you know, I'm, I'm mindful as a, as a father, you know, showing our children the breadth of, of at least some of these scriptures um, uh, and, and trusting that, especially the more that we emphasize the Jesus story overall, mm-hmm. uh, if we're sincere about that claim that he is our Lord, that that will inform them on which, which are the best choices. Uh, because they won't always see eye to eye. And you'll, you'll see some conflict, but they can also still be all of them in-house. Um, 
and and I think there's some beauty to that weird, strange tension uh, that it's the humanity that, that, that God loves to embrace, uh, just like the stickiness of Jesus becoming human. And that's what a mess that is, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but if God was was so willing to take that on and, and therefore validate the human experience uh, and demonstrate his love in that way, why should that be any less with scriptures? And, you know, can they be human too? Can we allow for that? Um, and would so, you I, say, I, yeah. Would you say it's fair to that a lot of people have placed their faith in the totality of the Bible as their God instead of Jesus Christ as their Savior and God? I don't know that I would go to that that length. I mean, it's going to be different for different people, and I'm yeah. I'm sure I'm sure for some it has gone that far. Not that many of us would would acknowledge that reality to ourselves, but yeah, no, but, nobody would yeah. probably admit it. In, and that's pretty brash, you know, pretty harsh yeah, language. Yeah. But the, 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 the idea, it, yeah. yeah, well, the the idea that because I know that's how I was. You know, mm-hmm. I saw the yeah. Bible as this flat text and. I really didn't have a true relationship or trust in Jesus. I had a trust in the Bible. Yeah. And and when I say the Bible, it wasn't as if, you know, because I, I believe the Bible is trustworthy to communicate the message it's intended to communicate. And then I think it ultimately points us to Jesus Christ. And, and I think that uh, we're to read the Old and New Testament and study it, but Jesus is who our, who our actual Savior is mm-hmm. and where my faith needs to reside. And you brought up something that, I thought was interesting. And I think maybe people may have missed this. I think it was a really good point. And maybe if you just want to talk about this just for a couple more minutes, because you had talked about how the compiler of these texts, you know, Proverbs mm-hmm. was, you know, these, these different Proverbs, it wasn't as just, just one person sat down and said, I'm going to write all these Proverbs out. It, it mm-hmm. seemed to be, there was a compiler and he was, uh, I believe by inspiration, you know, and that, that's a, another topic in and of itself, but for our, for just for simplicity's sake, I believe it was through inspiration, but he's taking these, uh, these different Proverbs and he's compiling them together. And he knew that one said, don't answer a fool. And the other said, he's the one who's compiling it together. Um, yeah. Whoever's compiling the Genesis account, they knew they were putting these two accounts side by side. Who, mm-hmm. who, when you're looking at the histories and when these histories were being put together and they were, you know, they were being put together in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament when, when the canon was being formed, uh, with the, when the Septuagint was being put together, they knew this information was there. And from everything I've studied, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but everything I've studied, they weren't trying to harmonize this. They actually would embrace this diversity of thought. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is greater proof that God is behind the inspiration of scripture, because guess what? If I'm a human and I don't have a greater force guiding me and I want to make everything look clean and clear cut and perfect, perfectly harmonizable. Do you think I'm going to put Genesis one and Genesis two, not only in the same book, but side by side, like yeah, at the you beginning, know, yeah. Yeah, like I'm not going to put these things together if I think that it's supposed to be perfectly harmonizable. So I, I think yeah. that, this is actually a greater proof. Instead of trying to, to prove that God's behind the scripture in these more modern ways, I think when you look at the way people wrote at that point in time, you can see God is certainly behind this. Because if he wanted this clean, clear-cut, perfectly you know, wrinkle-free idea in the Old Testament, 
you know, that I think that could have happened. And I think that would would actually have been more human. <laughs> but the mm-hmm. fact that all of these compilers not only put it in there, but they knew it was there and they discussed it was there. And we read at times, you know, I, I was reading uh, the, the, the Talmud and they were discussing um, even at that point, if Joe was a parable or if Joe was a real person, mm-hmm. th- they these were just common conversations they had. Whereas today we're like, oh, you know, how dare you question? It's like, this is what they did. Like the text mm-hmm. itself questions things. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I just think that if you want to, I don't know, if you want to spend a couple more minutes on that, I just think that's a fantastic point to to give weight to the fact that there's something greater than a human behind scripture because if it was a human wanting to make everything look good they wouldn't have done it like that <laughs> yeah well and and this is getting to the heart of idolatry for what idolatry really is you know it it is the, this desire to want a system to want something static uh rather than life such as it is and yeah. god in the details of of that life um and and so we fall back on the easy answers sometimes because it just, it feels secure. It's that security blanket. But, but here again, it comes back to that idea of maturity. If, if, you, if, and when you're ready and it comes for different people at different times, um, uh, you'll, you'll discern God has given you a conscience um, to start hearing the subtle differences and saying, this one's better over here. Um, I mean, I, I'm reminded of the, Paul talking about you being called from his mother's womb. And, and I mean, for one thing, he's, he's really tipping his hat to Jeremiah there with Jeremiah's kind of language. But, but think about that in, in practice. If, if this is Paul saying from my, my mother's womb, this was already, you know, God's plan. And, and if you think about the life of Paul in that kind of a way as inspired by God, that includes all those years where he was hunting down the church. You know, you, you were mentioning Kevin a moment ago, you know, Westboro Baptist, you know, they're not a lost cause, you know, and, and uh, in the case of all three of us here, you know, we're happy to say we think we're not lost causes, um, you know, as, as staunch as we were about this or that issue in the past that we needed to be more gracious about, Um uh, it's the process that you learn to value rather than just some idea of a static finished product, which that that's idolatry. Mm-hmm. So I think in that process, the tension that you're talking about mm-hmm. that feeds the good rather than stands against it is a hard thing to appreciate. It's hard for kids, especially to, to grasp, but you have to have loved and lost a little bit in life and, and then it will make sense <laughs> gradually. Um, uh, because you start to see more things die and crumble that you thought were uh, institutions beyond assault, you know, they, they could not crumble. Uh, but that's a reminder that they're not, they're not God. They might exist within God, but, <laughs> um, but they can't stand in for that divine that we are craving. Um, well, one of the things yeah. that you said earlier, and this all really ties together with what Kevin had just mentioned and asked and what had, and what you had said earlier about some of those tensions that exist, you know, did the census come from God? Did it come from Satan? You know, was Jehu acting righteously whenever he obliterated Ahab's bloodline from, from the face of the earth, you know, or did he need to stand and give an account for something wicked that he had done? And you were speaking in terms of maturity. And you were speaking in terms of Jesus, and that's one of the things that I've come to appreciate 
is the value of recognizing the humanity in scripture. You know, we're talking yeah. about the multivocality of scripture and how there are multiple voices that speak to us from the scriptures. We see God speaking to us. And that's that greater meta narrative arc that we see throughout the Old Testament and into the new, especially when we view the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus mm -hmm. and we take a Christocentric approach as it as it applies to faith, maybe not in terms of a of a critical eye towards it. And by critical, I don't mean in criticizing it, but I mean just textual critical textual criticism where you're just you're studying the text and looking at it to determine and learn more about it and its origins, et cetera, et cetera we see God's voice speaking to us through those human voices. We see the humanity of scripture at play and we see multiple perspectives on the person of God and who God is. And to me just is an overarching um, theme that we see of these, these various human voices speaking to us on behalf of God through scripture we're going to have various perspectives on who God is based on those human voices. You know, yeah. you, you talked about your kids and I think about my kids. If you ask my kids or if I tell my kids before I leave the house, all right, you guys need to make sure the living room's cleaned up, the bathroom's clean, the dishwasher's unloaded and reloaded. And, you know, I get home and maybe half of those things are done and I'm like, okay, why, why did the living room get picked up and the dishwasher got unloaded? It didn't get reloaded. Well, you know, my oldest did the living room and the youngest was able to clean up the bathroom, but the middle two, they, you know, unloaded the dishwasher, didn't reload it. And I'm like, why didn't this get done? And I'm there just going off. You guys need to help your mama out. Your mother's covered up. She has to put up with y'all y'all and she has to put up with me too. And y'all aren't getting this stuff done. And how's the oldest going to take that? Well, Hey dad, I did what you wanted me to do. Yep. You go to your room. You know, you go have fun, do your thing, go enjoy yourself <laughs> to the youngest. Well, dad, I cleaned the bathroom. Hey, good job, son. Now, why didn't y'all get this done? Why didn't you do this? If you ask any of them, their perspective on that conversation and how it took place, mm -hmm. all four of them are going to have different perspectives on what dad was saying and what kind of attitude dad have about it. Oh yeah. They all may say, well, dad was upset, but yeah, he was justifiably upset because you know, we were supposed to do this. We didn't. Well, yeah, dad was upset, but he had no reason to be upset. We got, we had to go out here and mama told us to go pull weeds or whatever else. Mm -hmm. There are going to be different perspectives about dad and who dad is and what dad tried to accomplish. If you have four kids that have a similar upbringing, your multiple kids that have a similar upbringing and you ask them their perspective on your parents, you may get a general sense and a general homogeneity about that, mm -hmm. but you're also going to get some differences too, because yeah. different people have different perspectives. And I think that really goes a long way in, in helping us to, to understand why we see various voices that speak to us throughout scripture. But we also see a harmonization of all of those voices come together when we examine the text through the lens of Jesus and him crucified as that as that ending to Israel's story, we might even say, or even mm -hmm. as as the culmination or, or the climax of Israel's story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I, I like to compare it, you know, using that analogy again of of maturity now, not just applied to ourselves, but what if we think of the text uh, and here I'm taking a note from Pete Inns' book. You know, um, I think he's done such a fabulous job giving us this language of incarnational reading of Scripture. Right? Yes. Uh, acknowledging that you know we're we're doing a disservice 
to Jesus as our Lord and uh, to the text as being in service to our Lord. If we say that Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine, you know, that math is supposed to make sense, but we go with it. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, but then we say, oh, but the Bible, 100% divine, not human. Uh, and, and if we do that, then we're, we're, if we realize we're, we're raising scripture above the position of, that we give to Christ of honor. Uh, whereas, okay, if, if we're on board, we recognize Jesus grew up. And according to, to Luke's account uh, of the Jesus story, uh, you know, he, he puts it using some language that sounds very similar to what we see in 1 Samuel, that he grew in his maturity and in favor with, with God and people. And, but that statement, he grew in maturity. So, there was a point in Jesus's life where he was less mature than he was later. You know, you're saying that of our Lord. He, you know, he, he was not always perfectly mature. Well, that's what, that's what these sacred texts tell us. Um, and so if we can say that of, of Jesus, um, can we say that of scripture? Could scripture, which we've already, you know, if, if, if your listeners are following along and, and they've seen some of these things for themselves, uh, then they're, they're at a point where they say, okay, not all these writers agree with each other. Don't see eye to eye. Can we consider that in the process of Scripture coming together uh, and viewing it as a flowing thing, not just one solid thing that was dropped out of heaven, then as a process, could we even think of that as growth, as maturation? Uh, in which case, let's let's use this analogy and just beat it to death. But But let's say... Can we imagine, is, do we see any scriptures that sound like an infantile stage or, you know, young children um, and their, their perception of the world or their perception even for that matter of God, what God would be like? Um, here again, I'll, I'll reference what, what Pete Inns has already started to talk about when he talks about uh, God lets his children tell the story, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, children of Israel, and they act like children sometimes, you know, uh, <laughs> like we all do. Um, so I would say, you know, when you're looking at some of those pre-exilic texts and some of those go back to those archaic biblical Hebrew passages I was telling you about, um, like Exodus 15, Song of the Sea or Song of Deborah and Barak, that think about that rallying cry. God is a warrior. I mean, that, that's language drawn out of Exodus 15, right? It even says Yahweh is a man of war. That's the, that's the literal kind of unpacking of the Hebrew there. He's a man of war. Uh, and so that's a superhero kind of version of God. But notice that one's enthusiasm for God in a text like that is, oh, yeah, he's, he's so cool because he can dash our enemies to pieces. That's awesome. And, you know, my boys are both elementary age. They love that stuff. Yeah, and buddy. If I'm honest, I do too. But... <laughs> <laughs> But there's a part of me that has also grown past that. And I know that uh, there are more complex heroes for them to learn about over time. Um, but at the same time, I don't fault them for that stage in their in their growth. Of course, a lot of little kids are going to be drawn to embodying or playing out the role of the Hulk and Thor and all these, these action heroes uh, because that makes sense to them and they are enamored with that raw idea of power. Um and, and also with the, the all-too-simplistic story 
that there are good guys and bad guys <laughs> and never the twain shall meet. <laughs> and uh, we, of course, are the good guys, right? Yeah, and, and the we bad guys. Are, yeah. yeah, and the bad guys are those orcs over there. and which, which, did, which then I horrible. realized I used yeah. to be the bad guy, but now I'm the good guy. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, yeah. So, so now, we can, now we can go get the bad guys now that I'm no longer one of them. <laughs> That's right. Now let's get them, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you guys, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, all of this really, it, while – it can be tricky to navigate. It's already mm-hmm. tricky to navigate. And I, I think that that was kind of the realization that helped me that while this can be something that really throws people for a loop when they start studying this, mm-hmm. it's not as if the Bible is this clear cut Christian constitution of three or four things that we're you know, supposed to do uh, or, or hundreds of things we're supposed to do um, or thousands of things we're supposed to do that there, we, we have to, as we're reading scripture and understanding about Jesus and just hearing the message outside of scripture, um, you know, realizing that a lot of people never had direct access to read the Bible. And even if they did, they probably couldn't have read it because they didn't have the ability there. They didn't have uh, the, the literacy to, uh, to be able to do so. And so when mm-hmm. you, when you start thinking in terms of that, that that's helped me to realize that there are several things, you know, w- w- the question I asked you, I've had to ask myself, how do I determine these things? And ultimately my faith lies in Jesus Christ. I think that the, the purpose mm-hmm. of the Bible is to point us to Jesus, to tell us a story about who Jesus is. And ultimately Jesus is to tell us who God is. Yeah. Um, and, well, if I can tap into that too, because yeah. that's, you know, that's where that story of maturation eventually leads, right? Yeah. You know, so you have that infancy. We're the good guys. We fight the bad guys. They're over there. And our God always helps us win those battles. Yeah. And, and ultimately that's a Joshua kind of story, like the book of Joshua. Um, but then later in Israel's history, and, you know, can we say that the inspiration process is an inspiration even of just chronology of history unfolding, uh, that that growth, just like plant growth and animal growth comes from God too, that eventually Israel starts losing battles and, and so terribly that they even go into exile. And now they're thrown into a tailspin. Nothing makes sense anymore. And like I was saying earlier, you know, what, what we thought were unshakable institutions are now broken. Uh, even the house of God, we thought that that was unassailable. Mm-hmm. How can that be? Um, did our God lose? <laughs> what ha- is Marduk stronger, the God of the Babylonians? What do we do with this? And so that's a major process of rediscovery, but of growth. And just like a lot of coming-of-age stories, it's not always happy and pleasant. You get the awkward <laughs> teen years and all this stuff, you know. Um, but, I mean, and that's that's being, you know, silly. But, but honestly, there is a lot of actual tragedy and trauma that comes in the growth process um, at varying levels for all of us. And exile was that, but it was formative. It was, it was the absolute garbage heap out of which something beautiful grew. Uh, and that what was a- this kind of informed Judaism that said, you know what, maybe the enemies have not always been out there. Maybe we've been enemies to ourselves and more importantly to God. But then there's even another stage, you know, because coming back out of exile, they rebuild the temple, right? They they rebuild a sense of who we are as God's people. We've got to do better this time. But notice how self-centered that still is. We've got to do better. And then, you know, God, God will, will be there for us and, and he'll send he'll send an heir of David to uh, kickstart the uh, Davidic dynasty. Once again, we need that to be reinstalled. Then everything will be great. And we know that God will do that because we've amended our ways and it'll be better. 
And then you have Jesus come and, and the power of God is clearly working through him. People are realizing this beginning with his healings and all that. And, and they start to attach these labels that, that have to do with their systems of security. He must be a prophet. He must be a Messiah. He must be dot, 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 right? Son of God and all this. And what's his preferred term? Son of man, you know, which yeah, is just yeah. a Semitic expression for human, you know. Um, <laughs> but it's also probably, a, a, you know, uh, an allusion, I think, very clearly to Daniel 7 with the idea that the Son of Man figure who eventually inherits an eternal kingdom from the ancient of days, from God's self, is not any of the terrifying beasts that represent human dominance in all of our empires, uh, but it is a meek, measly human being, you know, Poindexter. A carpenter uh, from Nazareth. Yeah, yeah. And so he, and if Jesus is using that terminology for himself, think about how he's he's rewriting the story. And that's the next stage of maturation. And and what I try to impress upon my students, and here's getting back to that question that began for us, you know, uh, now over half an hour ago, I think, too, um, in the original recording time, <laughs> was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know you'll edit all this, but, it was that, um, uh, you know, how do we discern? Well, I don't know, but but what do you like better? You know, since the name Jesus is really just the Greek version of Joshua, so mm -hmm. Jesus is Joshua, which do you like better? Do you like this Joshua way back here uh, in this infancy stage who was slaughtering these people that he presumed to be the enemies of God? Uh, and in the name of God, you know, let's kill the infants and toddlers as well. Make sure we get them too, as we do do God's work, you know. And but and, but by the way, when the, the Pharaoh yeah. or Herod commands it, it's a horrible thing. But yeah, then God it's horrible. But it, we, we have we have moral exceptionalism, so it's okay. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> but we're presented with a choice like that. You know, is that which one sounds like God to you? Which one do you think God would be? Now, many people in history and still to this day would say. The Joshua one that sounds that yeah. sounds strong that's convincing to me as divine and God, um, but I think a number of us, especially if we've experienced enough loss and love in our life, we come to a point where even as kids we might think, man, that Joshua God, that version is really cool. Um, would say as we get older, you know, I've had enough of that action. Uh, <laughs> I think I appreciate this. Joshua from Nazareth a little bit better. Well, and in his case, you know, he doesn't crucify Canaanite kings, which is really what Joshua did. You know, he in Joshua 10, he crucified them on trees. Um, that's really the meaning of the, that verb there, hanging. You know, he, he fastened them on trees. Um, this one gets fastened on a tree. And, and so it's a complete reversal of the pattern. The paradigm has shifted, but it couldn't have happened overnight. And this is where we, we put aside our old costumes that we thought spelled power and honor <laughs> as kids. And, and hopefully uh, we mature past that and our idea of what is, what is divine uh, changes. Well, and, and whether, you, whether you agree that there are tensions in the Old Testament or not, oftentimes reality corrects the understanding of earlier authors. Because as you pointed out, you have, okay, we're, we're going to be this warlike nation. Um, we're going to go and we're going to conquer all of these different these other nations. 
and our with with our God, we're unbeatable, we're unstoppable. And then all of a sudden, you know, fast forward till till a little bit, the, you know, few chapters later, um, and and then boom, you know, okay, wait, we're now in captivity. What's going on? We've been mm-hmm. defeated. What? Wait, wait, wait. You know, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And and I think that's where you constantly see these stories unfolding. Is they had these understandings and expectations. Reality shattered that. And then, as yes. you pointed out with Jesus, hey, here comes Jesus now. He's here to restore everything because we're this we're this warlike nation. This is the way things were supposed to be. But right now we're in a pickle. But Jesus is coming and, and our Messiah is coming. And we are going to conquer the Romans. And we're going to be put back in power. And our land's going to be ours again. And then what happens? Reality sets in. Wait a minute. If this is really the Messiah, why is he willfully going to the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do as he's being crucified. This doesn't look like this can't be our Jesus. He's teaching compassion. He's teaching peace. He's teaching love. Love your enemies. No, wipe your enemies out is what you're supposed to be doing. This can't be Jesus. And and then I think you've even seen this even with uh, apostles like John. You know, sons of thunder. Hey, let's rain it down, man. Like, come on, Jesus. They're rejecting you. Mm -hmm. Rain it down. And then as he grew older... He's yeah. known now as the apostle of love. And, and we have to and, think too, like how did he how did he come up with that? You know, yeah, John Elijah, and his, yeah, and he his brother. <laughs> because it was in sacred scripture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was, hey, let's do Elijah it. Like Elijah did that. Yeah. yeah, Elijah did it. And so and, you know, and Jesus corrected yeah. him and says, You don't know what spirit that that you are. And and I just yeah. think that when you look at the totality, and you know, I, I I know this is kind of cliche because the word is used so often now, but when you look at the meta narrative. Or what I like to call the character of the Bible. Someone asked me, they go, well, how do you know what to discern from the Bible or not? And I said, well, we all have that challenge. Uh, I said, this yeah. isn't just the challenge of me or us or those who think similar that, that like I do uh, to me. I said, this is something that we all have to wrestle with. I said, but I think instead of trying to take the totality of the Bible... You, you realize that the totality of the Bible points us and gives us a, a, a narrow uh, mark to follow, which is Jesus Christ. And then through Jesus, we can understand, okay, well, you've heard this, and this is this is what the law said, but let's actually properly go further and understand the spirit, the intent behind mm-hmm. the law. And and you see that Jesus now is becomes that that uh, that model that we're to follow. And of course, that doesn't answer any all questions. I think it answers some questions, but it doesn't answer all questions. There's still things that you have to use wisdom. We all have to use individual wisdom and we all fail at it every single day. But that's part of that trusting in God and leaning on God. And what has really helped me is, you know, I like I like the phrase the character of the Bible because there are times when I'm reading the Bible and there's something out of character. And someone asked me, what do you mean by that? I said, well, if you know someone really well, and you've been around them. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your a parent. Maybe it's a child, and you have a really good relationship with them. And they do something that's different. What do you say? You say that's out of character for them. And what that means is they're not acting like they normally act. And when you look at the Bible, there are times when, okay, a compassion and love and go and kill children. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Wait, go, go and kill children. Wait, okay, that there's something there that doesn't set right. And when we try to say things, well, that's God, we just have to somehow harmonize everything. What we're talking about in this episode, it gives, I believe, a lot of elasticity to Scripture, where now that we know there are clear times when something is attributed to God, when it was really probably Satan, what does that mean then if there's other times in Scripture when there's something that seems to be more 
sadistic and repulsive than loving and compassionate. Maybe then it wasn't actually God. Maybe they recorded it as their understanding of what God wanted them to do. And Mm -hmm. people say, well, that sounds like a far stretch. I don't think it's a far stretch. I think when you start looking at some of these examples, it's a, it, to me, that harmonizes a lot better than trying to say, well, no, this is just God. And he's, he's above any morals because anything that he does is right. So if he wants to change his mind tomorrow, he can, well, the Bible says God can't lie. Yeah. But if he decides to lie, then he's God. He can do what he wants to. He's, he's, above morals. So I I think that if you put God within the context of Jesus and Jesus says, I am God, I'm revealing who God is, then that all of a sudden means that if there's something that seems to go against Jesus, then I have to, I ultimately have to fall on Jesus. I I ultimately have to say compassion wins, mercy triumphs over judgment. These are my fallbacks. These are my boundaries. So when I'm not sure what to do, mercy, compassion, love, those are my fallbacks. That I'm not going mm-hmm. to, the safe side to me is not be more conservative, show more judgment than mercy, don't show compassion. No, that's not the safe side. To me, that's the opposite of safe. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, if I want the true safe side, I'm going to fall back on the Jesus who's touching lepers, on the Jesus who's hanging out with the sinners and tax collectors, not saying live any live life any way you want to, but who is there showing them love, showing them redemption, showing them forgiveness and compassion, giving them second chances. That's the God I believe in. And I think all of us have to ask that question. Whatever our beliefs are, what kind of God does that demand? And if that demand, you know, what kind of God do we believe in? And I'm going to tell you, a lot of people believe in a God that I don't believe in. Uh, you know, if, if, if you break it down, the God that they think exists is one that I would say, that's not the God that I believe in. That's not the God that I think exists. And I think ultimately we all have to do that to some form or fashion, whether we've thought that through very hard. That's a different subject altogether, but I think we ultimately all have to do that. Well, I think what Grant said earlier, brother, is a perfect, well, I I won't say perfect, but it's a really good, because (laughs) I mean, you know, maybe I want to give credit where credit's due. It's an excellent perspective, and it's It's incredibly helpful to that end. It's an inerrant perspective. (laughs) Infallible. Oh, yikes. Well, whenever... Well, whenever you think about the scripture in terms of that incarnational analogy that that Pete Enns likes to use, mm-hmm. and you added another layer to it, Grant, that I had never considered before, and it's the idea of maturation. And whenever we look at the scriptures in those terms, it it really does make a lot of sense. And whenever I think about myself and some of the positions that I used to hold and not even necessarily those positions, but the way that I would preach those positions, the way that mm-hmm. I would teach those positions and communicate those positions. No one's ever the villain in their own story. You know, yeah. Israel's not the villain in their own story, but to the, the Edomites, they were the villain. To the Moabites, they were the villains. To the Babylonians, mm-hmm. the Medo-Persians, they were the villains. And they won some and then they ultimately lost big time. You know, they're carted off into captivity. Their entire homeland's obliterated. Well, you know, myself five, six, seven years ago, I would be the villain in my story now. And what that means is, is that I have, I have grown and matured to a point. I'm not as mature as I will be. And there are some ways in which I'll never be mature. I'll always have a (laughs) sense of humor, like a 15 year old kid. Um, But but in a sense, there's a level of maturity that we all experience and we all appreciate that. 
And whenever you look at the scriptures and you take an overview, you look at a 40,000 foot view of the Bible, you can see that maturation continue to grow. I mean, my favorite Bible character whenever I was a kid was Samson because he had super strength. He had long hair. He had super strength. He was, he was an Israelite superhero essentially in the time of the judges. And then as I got older and a little more mature, Jehu was one of my favorites because he was just a bloody man. He was a warlord. He was a hero. He was strong. He was powerful. He went and wielded the sword. And now my favorite hero of scriptures, Jesus. I mean, we see no one better exemplify God. Just like you were saying, Kevin, any view of God that violates the tenets that we see in Jesus, because Jesus is God revealed. He is the fullness of God represented in bodily form. You know, the fullness of the Godhead we find in Christ. And so if there's any perspective on Joshua, as you said, do we like the first Joshua? Or do we like Joshua 2.0 better? And yeah, there's a time where the kids are going to like the first Joshua who, you know, made the sun stand still, who knocked down the walls of Jericho and, you know, who conquered the land of Canaan. But then eventually we grow to the point where that second Joshua is much more compelling. He's much more resonant. He's a better representation of the fullness of what it means, not just to be human, but he's the example we follow to be more like God. And viewing the scripture through the lens of that maturation and that being a, a view or rather a perspective that helps to reconcile those multiple voices, that multivocality that we see represented in scripture, it's incredibly helpful. And you've really helped me think about that in a much more clear way, Grant. So I appreciate that tremendously. Thank you. Yeah, we're great. happy. Yeah, we're gonna have to have you back on, man, because this is. Uh, I feel like we could just talk about this one subject all day long, and I know we've done audience, it for two hours now. So I, I, know, I, I know our audience is gonna enjoy it because these are the types of conversations that, quite frankly, most people aren't having among the common Christian. Um, you know, the and there these are questions I think the common average Christian at times has, but they don't feel like there's a place they can explore it safely. Or they feel like, uh, you know, they shouldn't even be having these questions to begin with. And so I'm hoping we can give courage. I'm hoping that listening to uh, Grant tonight, who is a Christian, <laughs> who uh, this is his life. This is what he does for a living. He studies this for a living. And for, for him to come along here and say, hey, this is let's be honest with the text. Uh, we can still be Christians. And in my opinion, and I think it's your opinion, too, from what you've said, this, in many ways, I, I, it has strengthened my faith. It has not made it weaker. It has actually given me a stronger faith in the way and process in which God has uh, compiled the Bible and, and inspired the Bible to be the way it is. And uh, instead of, it's kind of like going on a date, you know, you have, you have uh, in mind how the relationship's going to be, and then you realize the person's not the way you, you, you wanted them to be, or the person's not acting the way you thought they would act, and then you have a decision. Do you want to break up with the person, or do you want to love them the way that they are? And I think we have to look at the Bible and say, okay, now that we've done more than just gone on a few dates— we have we have uh, gone and been in a long relationship, and I realized that there's some some quirks about the Bible that I was taught didn't exist. There's some tensions there that I was told that this isn't the fairy tale book I was told about. 
But it is from God, I believe. It is a real book, and now I have a decision. Do I break up with the Bible because I don't like the way it behaves? Or do I say, you know what, I had false expectations on you, Bible, and it's time for me to change those expectations, and I'm going to continue my relationship with you, but now I'm going to continue with the proper expectations. Yeah. No, I think that's rock solid. So as we get ready to wrap this up, uh, Grant, do you have anything else that you want to share? Any other points you want to make? Anything that that you would like to state before we sign off? Uh, yeah, just in short, I would say uh, for, for any of your listeners who are going through some of this process themselves, if this sounds relatable, uh, my best advice, I say this just from what I've experienced, uh, pray, pray to God. Uh, maintain honesty in the process. You know, don't don't fall back on on deceiving yourself, but be honest about what you're seeing. Um, and three, just remind yourself of, of the tenets uh, uh, that your, your axiomatic statements. What matter matters most to you? Uh, and and you know, what can you fall back on in terms of your convictions? Blank slate. Uh, do you still know, for example, that the greatest commands are to love God? And love neighbor, uh, and and if if you have a standard like that, then even as everything else around you is shifting, um, that is a security blanket, which is not a bad one to have <laughs> to fall back on. You know what you what should guide you in the process of what you listen to, what voices you listen to, would be what what expands my love for others, uh, what leads me to better love uh, for for God and neighbor and enemy. Uh, and, and then look for that in the text. Go back to the Bible and find where you see those voices, especially. You're going to find them certainly coming from Jesus. You're going to find them also in the Old Testament. Uh, you're going to find some voices, like I said earlier, the, the, in the book of Jonah. Um, there is a message of God's compassion for all peoples, not just those that view themselves as his chosen ones. Um, and, and for that matter, you know, uh, this may sound strange, but... Where do you see goodness in other people's uh, uh, sacred texts? Uh, call it good wherever you see it. You know, if 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 uh, if anything is good, it, it shouldn't have to be my own brand of good. If if I see a, a valuable teaching, um, I, I'm thinking, for example, of the the uh, the Tao Te Ching, um, a, a famous Taoist uh, text that talks about how all the all the rivers uh, flow into into the sea because the sea is lower than they. You know, it lowers itself, and that's a beautiful image of humble leadership. That's what it, what the author um, uh, Lao Tzu is getting at there. You know, is you know the, the leader should humble himself. I don't care that that's not in our sacred scriptures. That is beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, and so, uh, not only will will this I think inform our our more compassionate reading of, of our own sacred scriptures, uh, but all sorts of literature out there and to see the, see how God is working in the lives of, uh, of, of all people of all creation. Brother, this has been a fantastic conversation, well, man. Thank you for having me. This is great. I'm, I'm, t- I'm telling you, man, our, the, the day springers are rocking it, brother. They really <laughs> are, man. <laughs> Well, man, we have been absolutely thrilled and honored, and it has been an absolute pleasure to have you come and spend a lot of your time on our little program. Man, we appreciate it tremendously. It's It's been an absolute joy to have this conversation. And like Kevin, 
I would be fine keeping this going for another couple of hours, but then my wife is going to start getting upset. Your wife might start getting upset. Bethany, she's just so cool. She'd probably never get upset. But Bethany's awesome, man. Dude, it's hard. It's so hard to like her. Mo, mo, you know, her like Joshua is Jesus, man. Like she, her, her like uh, upset is kindness. I mean, it's so funny because when she gets mad, I always uh, joke with her and I'm like, sweetie, it's hard for you to even get, and I start laughing at her. She's like, but I'm mad right now. So you're so cute when you're mad. It's, she's, she's like the sweetest person in the world. Kim's scary. She just, she's like jail with that tent peg. I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, someone's about to meet their demise because she doesn't get mad often. But when she does make sure there are no sharp objects in here, baby, I love you. If you're listening to this, you know, I love you, but in any case, <laughs> Grant, we Sleep appreciate you open whenever this uh, airs, man. That's Absolutely. Say, yeah. But Grant, we appreciate you, man. Once again, we look forward yeah. to having you on again in the future. This is a great conversation. Um, we want to let our listeners know that if this is the kind of stuff you like to hear, we'll definitely do more of it. Drop us a line and let us know if you're enjoying the podcast. I mean, our download numbers keep growing every month. So I assume you are because you keep listening and you keep telling people about it. So thank you all for that. Keep listening. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. We appreciate that tremendously. Share our podcast on Facebook, on social media. Join our discussion board on Facebook if you are so inclined, unless you're like Kevin and you're too cool for Facebook. If that's the case, well, then just don't worry about it. If you have any comments for us, we love hearing from you. Reach out to us and we will see you all soon.